Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you, so uh, grab a stool. We've got one waiting for you here, and let's uh, dig right in. Uh, Jim, uh, odd-numbered years usually don't get a ton of election attention, but uh, here where we live in Virginia, uh, the races are tight and they're very important. A new poll that we're happy to see from Mary Washington University conducted by Research America shows that while Terry McAuliffe uh, is slightly ahead among registered voters, he's losing to Republican Glenn Youngkin among likely voters. According to the survey, 48% of likely voters favoring Glenn Youngkin, former head of the Carlisle Group, and 43% backed Terry McAuliffe, the the money man for the DNC and former uh, Democratic governor of Virginia. According to the... um, the registered voters, it's 46-41 in favor of McAuliffe. Most polls have McAuliffe slightly ahead, and I do mean slightly. It's usually within the margin of error. This poll from Mary Washington University also suggests that the Republicans are ahead by six in the lieutenant governor's race with Winsome Sears over Hala Ayala and by four in the attorney general's race, which is amazing because Mark Herring is a two-term incumbent Democrat, but he's losing to the Republican, at least according to this survey, 46-42 to uh, Jason Miara. So, Jim, obviously a long way to go. Early voting has begun in Virginia. We'll see if uh, this is kind of like the California recall where the Democrats just kind of wake up late. But as of right now, in a state that's been trending blue for over a dozen years now, I got to like this news. Greg, this poll result really made me kind of sit up and take notice because the good news for Youngkin over the last weeks and months has been that the polling's you know definitely closer than we've seen uh, in a bunch of the last couple of years for Republicans in Virginia, but, you know, not quite close enough, you know, anywhere from three, four, five, six point leads for uh, McAuliffe. And the perception had really been solidifying that, you know, Virginia used to be a purple state and now it's a blue state. And so the this, you know, poll comes out with a statement from uh, Stephen Farnsworth, who's a professor of political science at University of Mary Washington and director of their, you know, Center for Leadership and Media Studies. And he says, you know, his quote is, reports of the end of Virginia's status as a swing state are greatly exaggerated. Um, He says it's going to be the closest statewide election in years. And he did, this is kind of a point worth emphasizing. This election looks very different from those of the past four years when Democrats could win by substantial margins just by focusing the electorate on President Trump. And Lord knows, if you live in Virginia, you've seen Terry McAuliffe's ads that basically are insisting, Youngkin Trump, Youngkin Trump, Youngkin Trump, you know, over and over again. Um, and he says, look, you know, Farnsworth continues, Trump is not president anymore. Recent Democratic advantages in statewide contests seem to have departed with him. Now, yeah, we should point out this comment. This, no, it's possible that sometime between now and Election Day, uh, it does, you know, Virginia Democrats do wake up to this. But I think this kind of fits with um, just little anecdotal things I've been hearing every now and then. I'm asking people. Uh, particularly if they don't live in my neck of the woods in, in Fairfax County, you know, you see in yard signs, what are you hearing? And most people say that they're hearing, you know, very, very little. Um, but there's a f- bit more Yunkin signs than they're used to seeing, particularly in the, the kind of the suburban areas in Northern Virginia. And the other thing which seems, you know, notable is that there's a lot fewer Terry McAuliffe signs than there were a couple of years ago. I think it is safe to say that Terry McAuliffe is not really the kind of candidate who's going to go out and get your average grassroots Democrat that excited. 
He's a known quantity. He's been governor before. I think most Virginia Democrats liked him as governor, but they certainly didn't love him. They certainly didn't, you know, feel the kind of fervor and enthusiasm you see associated with a uh, Barack Obama type or even a, a Bernie Sanders type who's got, you know, supporters who will walk over hot coals to cast a vote for him. Um, you know, I think if you're you're a diehard progressive, I think maybe if you're African-American, you know, Terry McAuliffe is not your favorite person. You'll probably vote for him. You're just not terribly all that motivated. And this is the kind of, you know, perfect storm of circumstances that a young kid is going to need. A sense where the Democrats are not really all that inspired. Maybe they have a hangover from 2020. Um, you know, you're, you're, you know, the party in power tends to have the grassroots get complacent at some point. And the flip side of that is that Republicans are mad as hell and they're mad as hell, mad as hell at, at Biden. They're mad as hell about the state of the country. They're mad as hell about teachers and, and unions and schools and teaching of crazy curriculum and all of that kind of stuff. And so all of you, the idea is that if you're really, if you, know, if you really, depending on that, you know, what's a likely voter. And if that likely voter screen is tight enough, it looks like Youngkin can win. So, I mean, if you're a Democrat, this should be a five alarm fire for you. I don't think, you know, don't tell Democrats about this. In fact, Greg, we never should have talked about this. Everybody erase this podcast. But um, an interesting indicator, and it doesn't say Youngkin will win this, but I think it now says that a Youngkin win is not utterly unthinkable. Although I'd like to see this uh, trend continued in more polls between now and Election Day. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the track record for Mary Washington is. I saw one story that said they had Northam up five in September four years ago. He ended up winning by about nine, so they're not that far off. But I would say uh, two things to keep an eye on here. Most polls, maybe not Mary Washington, but most polls late in the governor's race four years ago pretty much had it a dead heat. Maybe uh, maybe Northam by one over Gillespie, uh, but it was very tight, and Northam ended up winning by nine. But the reason for that is because Virginia, particularly Northern Virginia, trends so much with what's happening in Washington. And of course, Northern Virginia is increasingly liberal. They hated Trump. And so they turned out in huge numbers for Ralph Northam and the Democratic ticket. And on the flip side, uh, Donald Trump, as you said very well, is not president anymore. Joe Biden now has his numbers in the tank at a time that could at least depress uh, Democratic turnout in Northern Virginia, or perhaps motivate uh, Republicans in Northern Virginia who, who maybe weren't that enamored with Trump. So we'll see. We got a couple of uh, factors that are in very different directions than they were four years ago, and it'll be fun to see how they how they work out. I would also love to see Hala Ayala bite the dust here. She's my delegate right now, and she's horrible. So uh, we'd love to see her back into the private sector. All right, Jim. Uh, so that's good news. Also good news, Jim is doing the podcast yet again today from his beloved X-Chair. And so uh, they are our sponsor again today for the Three Martini Lunch. And uh, as Jim is happy to tell you once again, the X-Chair is a fantastic investment. You know, listeners, we had a really terrible downpour of rain this morning. A little flooding in the area. Got the, you know, the alerts on my phone. Uh, so things were kind of down, you know, you've heard about the kitchen uh, work going on behind me and all that kind of stuff and work stress, kids back to school, nagging them to do their homework, all the all kind of, you know, little things that add up. But you know what? Every day I get to sit in my X chair and it makes everything a little bit easier to use. And it's not just the massaging features, although those are terrific. It's not just the heating features, which are terrific. Maybe the cool, I mean, like oh, this, this chair can do it everything. It is comfortable. It makes sitting in my chair for a long for a long stretch and working at my desk, you know, not uh, a pain. In fact, it's good for your back. It's good for your shoulders. 
Um, I keep emphasizing to people, you're going to spend, if you work at a, you know, if you work in an office or you work, you know, most people, a lot of people still working from home, you're spending the neighborhood of eight hours in your chair. You do not want to be doing that at the wooden kitchen table uh, type chair or something. That's how you're going to get back issues. That's how you're going to get shoulder. You're going to get mouse arm, all that kind of stuff. Take care of yourself. And, you know, I know, you, you know, this is the kind of chair it's worth it because you're going to be spending so much time in it working hard at your job. Trust me, this is not a place where you want to skimp. This is not a place where you want to cut corners. The X chair is worth every penny. So go out, get yourself that, your back, your shoulders, your whole body. We'll thank you later. Absolutely right. Try the X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair could be, you'll never go back. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. Again, xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim, let's move on to our bad martini. And we have known for a while now that the uh, evacuation from Afghanistan has uh, pretty much been a disaster. But now we've got a clearer picture of just how badly this was bungled because we keep hearing from the State Department and the Pentagon about all these people were able to get out. Yeah, it was all haphazard and rushed and uh, led to a terrorist attack on our troops and so forth. Uh, But ultimately, uh, despite the uh, chaotic conditions, we got so many people out. Well... Did we get the right people out, though? That is very much in question now, even more so, courtesy of this report from the Washington Examiner. Only a small percentage of the tens of thousands of Afghans who were evacuated and taken to the United States possess special immigrant visas. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said in a Tuesday hearing on Capitol Hill that only about 3% or approximately 1,800 have SIVs of the roughly 60,000 Afghan evacuees who have landed in the U.S. already. Additionally, 7% of them are U.S. citizens and 6% are lawful permanent residents or green card holders. 3% plus 7% equals 10% plus 6 more is 16%, which means 84% don't fit in those categories. Here's how Mayorkas explains that. The balance of that population are individuals whose applications have not yet been processed for approval who may qualify as SIVs and have not yet applied who qualify or would qualify, I should say, as P1 or P2 refugees who have been employed by the United States government in Afghanistan and are otherwise vulnerable Afghan nationals such as journalists, human rights advocates, etc. He said all this during a Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs hearing. So, Jim, the word may is doing a lot of work there. Uh, I've heard from people, you may have heard also, that a lot of Afghan government cronies, uh, rich people, kind of leverage their contacts to get on some of those flights. I don't know what the numbers are. Hopefully, a lot of these people who don't actually have SIVs were people that helped the United States. But it sure seems weird that these numbers are as lopsided as they are. Yeah, and I'm going to begin with a cautionary note that not everybody who wasn't in one of these categories, SIVs, uh, American citizens, American green card holders, um, you know, not all of them didn't need to come out of the country. I mean, one of the great ironies is we're dealing with a country where at minimum half the population of women would have every single reason in the world to want to get out of the country as quickly as possible. And so I am sure a lot of these people, even if, if they didn't file the right paperwork or the paperwork was still in the process, you know, being processed, um, they probably had good reasons to want to get out of the country. They probably felt like living under the Taliban was going to be really, really bad for them. 
and downright inhumane and brutal and, and you know, summary executions with no trial. It's like, look, I don't you know, dispute every last one of them really wanted to get out of the country. That said, we told the special immigrant visa holders we would get you out first. We, we said that was that was our promise. Our government gave its word and then our government broke its word. Our government broke its word to people who risked their lives. And one of the reasons you're seeing, uh, I hope everyone read that uh, that interview I had with uh, Anne-Marie Thrower that, that she describes like when you're over there in Afghanistan, you know, nobody likes being in a war zone. And, you know, thankfully, after a while, Afghanistan was not nearly as dangerous to work in as it was in the opening days of, of the war on terror. But it still, you know, you're far away from your, your family, you're far away from your friends, you're out there at Bagram or, or one of these places. And the Afghans, your interpreters that you're working with, she said that, you know, they kind of become your surrogate family. They're, they're the folks you see every day. So sometimes it's friendship. Sometimes it's more, you characterize it as, a, as brotherhood or sisterhood. This sense of, in some cases, you've been under fire. In almost every case, you've been working very hard. In almost every case, you've been under some degree of pressure and stress. And that, that brings people together. That, that creates a bond that, you know, you don't just forget about once you go home. So when U.S. veterans who work with all these athletes, like, that's why they're going back into the country and trying to figure it out. That's why they're trying to coordinate charter planes. That's why they're doing all this stuff, because they see them as almost de facto extended family, brothers in arms, right? These are folks who... We made an op- we have an obligation to, and that's you know, if the government was going to keep that promise, then ordinary American citizens were going to step up and keep that promise. But I got to tell you, listeners, to me that's not. A, I'm very proud of these people. I, I feel honored just to interview them, and God bless every last one of them. But that doesn't get around the fact that our government said it was going to do this, and then they decided, no, this got too hard. We're just going to forget about them. That's five, four or five days ago, man. You know, um, it, it's hard. It's heartbreaking. It is egregious. I did an interview with um, John Androsik of Five for Fighting, who's got this protest song about this. And then we were talking, like the observation, like the word you keep hearing from people who are really upset about this is they're not saying they're angry, although I'm sure a lot of them are. The word you keep hearing so much is ashamed. It's kind of the inverse of that uh, Michelle Obama statement. For the first time in my country, I'm ashamed of my country. That we gave people, we made people a promise that we would get them out of harm's way. And then we decided, never mind. And it's just egregious. So look, I'm, for everybody who did get over here, I'm glad. I, I don't think, I certainly hope they're doing background checks on these people. I hope none of them are on terror watch lists. We heard the story about the guys who are bringing underage wives and claiming they were their daughters and all kinds of horrible sex trafficking and all kinds of, like, like, I hope they weed out all that kind of stuff. I'm sure most of them really do have good reason to want to get out of the country. That said, we left tens of thousands of people who were, we were supposed to get out in there. And I think the Biden administration just hopes everybody forgets about it. Oh, they clearly do. They clearly do. But let me tell you a little bit more about the uh, Americans that are still there, because, of course, the narrative was we're going to get everybody out that wants to get out. And from what I have heard on a number of occasions is that you have American citizens there who ended up marrying people from Afghanistan. And the people they're married to might be green card holders. Sometimes they're not. Uh, I don't know what the situation necessarily is with the kids. So they get in touch with the State Department and State Department says, great, meet us at such and such a place but only you. We can't take your family. And of course, these people aren't going to leave their family behind to face the Taliban and whatever else uh, while they get out. And so they say, no, I can't leave without my family. And the State Department then chalks them up as people who don't want to leave. They're people who want to stay. To chalk them up in that category is deplorable. 
but genuinely uh, deplorable. That's a particular adjective that gets thrown around real willy-nilly these days. Yeah. <laughs> yes, not Hillary Clinton's definition of deplorable, actual deplorable. All right. Let's talk about something uh, far happier than that, and that is my pillow. We talk about my pillow all the time. Great products. The pillows are fantastic. Uh, love my pillow, literally. Uh, love the uh, sheets. Love the towels. But there's also my slippers. I know I've talked about these a lot. I love wearing these around the house. Uh, my slippers are so comfortable. I've said before, never was a slipper guy before, but I do love them now. Uh, my slippers took two years to develop these to ensure they are the highest in quality and comfort. And right now, if you use our promo code of Martini at MyPillow.com, you can get 50% off. The My Slippers are durable and you can wear them all day, indoors, outdoors, wherever you like. They're made from beautiful leather suede, have cozy faux fur linings, and have sole that's perfect for indoors and outdoors. They come in moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. But let me tell you about the layers. The first layer is the MyPillow Patented Fill. Now, the MyPillow Patented Foam that you know and love from your pillow, they use that to create a solid layer to provide incredible comfort. Second layer is the Comfort Memory Foam, which provides that micro comfort and support so you can wear these slippers all day. And the third is the patented Impact Gel, which is made from U.S. soybeans. It is revolutionary in absorbing impact and relieving pressure. And now for a limited time, MyPillow is offering 50% off the buy slippers. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listeners square. Don't forget to click on the radio listeners square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. Now, while you're there... Take advantage of the deep discounts also on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bedsheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. You can only save 50% on the new MySlippers when you use our promo code MARTINI. So call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. All right, Jim, our crazy martini is a follow-up on yesterday's good martini. Yesterday's good martini was the White House press corps actually getting upset enough with the Democratic administration to go file a protest over the fact that they were not allowed to ask Biden any questions during his Oval Office meeting with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, even after Boris Johnson uh, agreed to take questions. And so Ed O'Keefe, whose question got shouted down as uh, he and the others got ushered out on Tuesday, brought this up with Jen Psaki yesterday in the White House briefing room. And this was Jen Psaki's excuse for what happened. The British Prime Minister in the American Oval Office called on British reporters, and then when American reporters tried to call on the American president, we were escorted out, let's put it that way. Well, I think uh, in that circumstance, and, and I think our relationship with the United Kingdom and with Prime Minister Johnson is so strong and abiding, we will be able to move forward beyond this. But uh, he called on individuals uh, from his press corps uh, without alerting us to that intention in advance. So there's no apology, Jim. There's no uh, explanation, no uh, mea culpa of any sort. No, the problem is that Boris Johnson never told the White House that he would allow questions. So it's all his fault that the uh, White House press corps got treated like children or cattle or whatever comparison you want to use. Whose dumb idea was it to invite Boris Johnson to the White House? (laughs) Um, You notice this presidency tends to treat an unscheduled question sort of like covid Something the president must be protected against at all cases. No, 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 get him out of there. Whoa, 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 Six feet of distance. Six feet further away. No, no, get him out of here. You know, they're, they, they've got question cooties, you know. <laughs> they, they shout questions at the president. The president really should be afraid of questions. And by the way, like, you know, this isn't the first time it's happened. We may remember um, 
during the ongoing evacuation of Afghanistan. Mr. President, if there are Afghan, if, if you can't get every American out by the by the deadline, what will you do? And Biden said, kind of smirked and said, you'll be the first person I call or something like that. It was just like really off-putting, inappropriate, kind of jokey, smirky, you know, like people's lives are at stake and, and you know, Biden's being a smart ass. I understand why Jen Psaki and the White House press staff don't want Joe Biden answering questions because he's terrible at it because he does himself damage all the time that he does it because you never know what you're going to get. Oh, four or five days ago, man. You know, this this kind of obnoxious, self-destructive answer from that. But in the end, like, if that's the case, you probably shouldn't be president. You, you probably should, you know, step down and, and let Kamala or somebody else take over because, you know, communication is part of the job. Um, then the idea, like, you know, oh, it was Boris Johnson's fault. And Boris, you're the White House press secretary. You don't tell Boris Johnson what to do. He's a grown man. If he wants to answer questions, he can answer questions. The president of the United States should have the same attitude too. What is this idea that, oh, we can't have, the, we can't have somebody shouting questions at the president? Then he might try to answer them. And God knows what could happen then. You know, this, this tone of panic that like, you know, this um, reluctant, like, you know, answer questions is part of the job. It's not just the, the happy uh, uh, photo ops and waving and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's not just, you know, joking around with the, the champion sports teams when they come to the White House. Answering questions about your policies, particularly when those policies are going badly, is part of the job. You know, Biden's been, you think Biden had been trying to get this job long enough, he would understand that. But no, no, apparently, you know, questions are, questions are the new plague, Greg. And maybe in addition to, ear, you know, masks, if we all wear ear, uh, earplugs, we won't hear any of them. And then we won't be dangerously exposed to these contagious things of, of doubt and skepticism. <laughs> it's not like he's getting that tough of questions either. I mean, he got a few tough ones during Afghanistan, but most of them were pretty mildly worded. And I think the question that got shouted down from Ed O'Keefe is, what are your thoughts on what's happening at the border? I mean, talk about an opportunity to just go wherever you want with it. There was nothing challenging in the premise of the question. It's just tossing it out there. I mean, the press is not exactly hostile towards Joe Biden, but the fact that they don't even trust him to handle the most vague and open of questions is just disturbing. In part because there are no good answers to those questions. True. That's what makes those questions dangerous. When Kamala's the backup plan, you know, that's 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 job security on some level. That's not going to happen. Not going to happen anytime soon, but uh, we will see. Weird. Very weird to be sure. Jim, happy Thursday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. We always love to have new ears, and uh, we're always grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us again Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Joe Biden abandoned Americans and allies in Afghanistan, and now his decisions are spawning a genocide there. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll explain how the Biden administration is constantly lying to us and rolling over for the Taliban. I'll also bring on a good friend of mine to discuss how the terrorists that our government is expecting to behave are slaughtering the people of Panjshir. You won't hear this anywhere else. Subscribe to the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.